What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Yeah, let's start today by talking about this shirt, which I received a compliment on. It, it, it is J. Crew, and these are the days when J. Crew was a real step up for me because I I think I bought this with my own money, and I remember where I bought it because I was in drum roll college. So we're talking about thirty years ago, and this and this shirt's holding up. I'm very proud to present it to you today. Before we jump into this week's topic, I wanted to give you a live update on something that's happening right now. I just realized, speaking of the LinkedIn game, that I prepared a small snippet of our classic Abraham's Wallet bit on the Mother's Day nightmare. Oh, who can forget? To LinkedIn as kind of a public service announcement for fathers, because there's a lot of fathers on LinkedIn. Okay. And where there's a father, there's often a mother. Yep. And so I, uh, I just tossed that out to the world right here in real time while we were recording the Abraham's oh, Wallet. Oh, that is podcast. so cool. You were there. Yeah, when you see that two weeks from now when you're listening to this because it's <laughs> been edited up and posted, yeah, you can jump over to LinkedIn and like it and it won't matter at all because it's two weeks old at that point. <laughs> But you can remember when, and you can learn the lesson today, which is when you see Mark Parrott uh, posting on LinkedIn, then uh, like him and uh, comment him and bless him. While we're talking in the Idea Lab, I'd like to throw out something that I experienced this past week. So I think I mentioned this at some point that it, this was 20th anniversary getaway getaway for me yes. and my wife. Congratulations. And, thank you. And we're going to be, I'm going to be borrowing some of the equity of that trip in a moment. But while I was on this trip, Mark, forgive me when I tell you, forgive me for my hubris and arrogance when I tell you, I feel that I'm good at planning trips. I feel that when it comes to creating an itinerary of good, Wait, yeah. Can I testify? Yeah, go ahead. Let's let's. Talk I just to want people. to testify that that's true. I've been the beneficiary of your trip planning. So, okay. Amen. Brother. All right. Okay. It's it. Say it twice. Okay. So I think a trip is a sacred thing, and so I think that where you stay matters. That doesn't even have to be the nicest place. Maybe what you're doing is a is a bro weekend and you want a motel. Well, then I think that ought to be the moteliest place that you can get to. And it ought to be fun and interesting. And then around that, you want to build activities that meet the needs of what you're there for. And then you want to supplement, augment with fun, interesting meals and meals shouldn't be wasted. That these are all my theories. Anyhow, um, I put together a winning itinerary for this 20th anniversary getaway. And while I was there, this, I had this, I had this nagging feeling, you know, how you might send 
oh, you're at a, you, oh, we're at the Liberty Bell. So I'm going to take a picture of it and I send it along to my parents, for instance, and go, oh, we're at the Liberty Bell. That's neat. Well, on this trip, I kept thinking where it wasn't a summit per se. It was just an anniversary getaway. Um, but I kept thinking the people, my Abraham's wallet people would appreciate so many of the wonderful things that we're able to do here applies to so, so many ways applies to uh, us and our community here, et cetera. And I thought to myself, is it hubris? Is it vainglory? Um, to, to dream of, I think I could put together a little video for the people. Now it's too late now, but I could have put together a video for the people. Here's us walking through our itinerary. And this why this is a smart way to put this trip together. Do you see how we did this and this? And it was great. What do you think of that idea of having a, having a, maybe it would be a 10 minute. Here was a great trip we went on and Here's how you can, I don't know, build a trip that mirrors this or even go on this exact yeah. trip. I think that's an awesome idea, Stephen. I, I think that, you know, sending a picture to your parents, that's that's the original version of an Instagram post. Of course. Like, hey, you know, it's it's a Pony Express with a photo that you posed <laughs> for 30 minutes yes. with the family and said, we made it to, to South Dakota. Of course. And we've homesteaded. but. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't know. Could you could you have done that live via the Volley Channel? Would that have been an opportunity for you to just spin up a little Stevie's vacation thread? I could have created a thread and added to it as we went. Yeah, that could have worked. We're stay still. You know what? This issue actually came up today. We have a friend who's an equity partner at uh, Volley. And he says that they're working on the ability to export threads. And if we could, if I could build a whole thread, then later go back, export it and build it into a, a little YouTube vid, that'd be a big win. Anyhow, it was the kind of thing I think of and you think to yourself, would this benefit anybody? Would anybody besides me be very interested in this? I don't know. So I'll throw it out there. Anyways, I'll get to the trip now. As I say, the following. Ready? Here, here's the issue today is that as I tell you what my, as I've been cooking on, my noodle has been cooking on lately, I want us to, to go back to the Abraham's wallet value of multi-generational families. I don't think we can talk about that enough from many angles, uh, which we do, and there's a lot of opportunities to talk about it. But um, th there's a modern idea that, that I want to, drive a stake through. And the, the idea is, um, that it, when I turn into an adult, I, uh, borrow money for college. Um, I, I I'll pay for it later when I start my career and then I'll go through life working for a big company. I'll, I will, uh, move up a few rungs on the corporate ladder by the time I am done with my career, I'll end up in a nicer house that is more or less paid for. Um, I will pay for my retirement. And by the time I die, maybe I could write a $100,000 check that gets split up among my kids and uh, 
thumbs up. Now they get to do it all again. Now they get to do the same thing again. Um, I find that that line of thinking disgusts me because I find it to be super anti-biblical. Um, that kind of thinking treats every generation as a thing unto itself. Like the beginning of the story is when you turn 18 and the ending of the story is when you die. And that is not the story that the Bible tells. The Bible tells a, forgive the buzzword, multi-generational story. That there's a story, there's a family story. There's not a you story. There's a family story. And you are one of the Legos that builds this family story. The, the American idea is, is kind of like as if all that I would have a conversation with my father about would be, could he give me uh, some ideas of where to find a mortgage because he knows where he found a mortgage. And when you were, dad, when it was time for you to open up a 401k, who'd you go with? I went with Fidelity, son. Oh, great, dad. Thanks. What, what was your first car? I trust Chevrolet, son. Oh, Chevrolet. Thanks, dad. As if we're all doing the same moves over and over again. And I find that repugnant. My money, my plans, my ambitions for my life, they're supposed to be, they are my father's plans and his money and his ambitions. They should be the same thing. So there's a, there's a famous verse that we use in talking about children. It's Psalm 127. It says like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. The idea being that you throw your generations forward and, and they're, they're not just markers, by the way, they're arrows. That is, I intend for my children to do damage for the for the kingdom's sake and i throw them forward i was just looking at uh, uh our friend mark douglas's uh family vision statement today and it talks about we throw into the future this this thing that's just part of who they are is that we want to we want to throw into the future well i am i am the arrow that my father has sent into the future and it doesn't make a lot of sense if you think of Think of a golf shot. So there's a golf hole. You start at the tee box. There's a hole in your first shot. You want to set up the second shot. And then the second shot, you want to set up the third shot so that you make it to the green so that you can get in the hole. Can you imagine the idiocy of shooting your first shot as if all that matters is how the first shot goes and feels? I'm just... I'm just here to make it a great shot. And you stand on the tee box and you look in any direction you want going like, what's the most satisfying direction? I'll just hit that way. And then the second that somebody else, let's say you're playing a scramble, somebody else walks up to the ball and they ask the same question. What would be the most satisfying direction that I could go? And then they just hit the ball again, as opposed to no, we're each shot or each, if I can go back to each shot of the arrow, I'm trying to go in a specific direction. So uh, I, I, my expectation is that a father has complete interests in his, what his children are doing with their lives. He, he throws all of his weight behind it when they're in childhood. And even a grandfather would be very interested 
we're, we're going to be talking to a, a, a great-grandfather, not a, a great-grandfather is confusing wording, a fantastic grandfather to talk to us about some grandfathering tips and tricks because of this, because so few grandfathers have owned this vision, which is a multi-generational idea. So the, the idea should be, the biblical idea, I think, is that me and my father, we're pulling on the same rope. Me and my father and my grandfather and my son, we're all pulling on the same rope, headed the same direction. And this, this is the way that uh, the scriptures describe multi-generational stuff. Before I get into those uh, scriptural references, you want to make any comments? No, I'm just thinking about the implications for a father who has his eye on the pin. He is aimed and then he hits it in the lake 90 degrees in the wrong direction oh, by no. accident because oh, no. that's what that's where you lost me with your golf metaphor is no matter how into in fact the more intent i am on the goal <laughs> the more likely i am to wing it into the poor guy mowing the lawn over okay. by the clubhouse so okay. i don't know Let's leave the metaphor at when you hit off of the tee box, you're thinking about future shots, even shots that you think they're not being made right now, but what I'm doing right now matters for them. I'm thinking this is a par five and it's going to take me four generations to get to the green. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps. Well, uh, we'll look at some of our examples here later and see that. Um, So... This brings us to, I can't talk about this subject without um, talking about the central biblical uh, example, the model for building a multi-generational family in the Bible. Can you think of who that would be? Um, I'm going to go with Abraham for 500, Alex. Ding, 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 ding. You're correct. It is Abraham. He is the picture in all of scripture of someone who successfully built a multi-generational family. It's worth noting that um, rarely, I'm trying to think of if ever, I should know this answer before we, before I start talking about it. I don't offhand, but I think it's true that rarely is God called the God of Abraham. What he is most commonly called is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is that? It's a multi-generational family. If if Abraham's last name was Johnson, I don't think we would have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We would have the God of the Johnsons, which similarly, we have that in the phrase, the God of Israel. That's the family. That's the name of that family, the God of Israel. And so when you hear that, we probably think of a nation most likely, or you maybe think of that as a synonym for Jews. Those are legitimate thoughts. However, the biblical story is that's the name of a family that God chose and he assigned his name to. And he said, I'm the God of this multi-generational story that's being told through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a very, very important concept for us to get our mind around which is why I am deliberating on it. Um, All I want to say about Abraham up front in this context is that in Genesis 13, we learn that Abraham had some wealth. 
we know that he had some some cattle and some land. And um, we don't know how he came by that exactly. We, we, we would assume that he was given a leg up by his father. What we know is that in his lifetime, he dramatically expanded that capital, even when he had to go into Egypt for a while and live in a foreign country, he expanded his, he expanded his, uh, assets. And then he passed on this successful family to his children. We've done an episode called small beginnings and how it's really important to understand what you're doing and understand that you are doing this flinging forward with your life so that even if you're the first generation to not live in debt, you're the first generation to not depend on credit cards, you're the first generation to live inside a budget and actually have a savings, for instance, those are not meaningless gains. Um, they, they will take your generations somewhere else. And I think that the telling of these stories um, is really important for people to feel that encouragement that I might not be the one that ends up influencing nations, discipling nations, which is our mandate, but I can produce a family where there are nation influencers on my downline. So I want to give people some examples of those in addition to some extra biblical examples in addition to Abraham, because I think it helps illustrate the point. Yeah. Okay. I think that this is really helpful because as much as we talk multi-generational family vision at the Abraham's Wallet podcast, there is a temptation to kind of say that you're doing multi-generational family vision, but really, and maybe you are the Abraham, if you'll let me use the term, where you're the first one, you might be the first one that follows Jesus you might be the first one that stays married to the same woman or who knows. There's all sorts of for firsts that would make us go, yeah, you're probably going to need to start from the from the foundation level. Yep. However, it's very easy um, to say you're being multi-generational when really you're kind of doing it all yourself. And the question has to be asked, are you really kind of casting a vision that's going to take longer than your own lifetime to fulfill? Or do you just like all this multi-generational talk, but you're using it as a, a framework to just sort of do your thing and set yourself up as a patriarch and f- sort of pat yourself on the back from time to time? Because there's a lot of LARPing that goes on in the multi-generational family vision world. And some of it, like our good friend Jeremy Pryor does, that's just good old-fashioned real LARPing where mm-hmm. you actually dress in medieval garb and go to the park. Yeah. But some of it, I'm like, no, you're actually just living exactly like the the one-generation guy that's going to max out lifetime enjoyment and kind of strapping some multi-generational language, multi-generational language onto it. Um, so I, I'm excited to kind of hear... Uh, what it looks like for families that maybe we can, even though Abraham is the goat, there are some families that we can relate to a little bit more uh, just culturally because they happened in the last 100 or 200 years. And they might not have had the multi-generational vision that we have, but they they did go after something. That's right. It took more than 40 years to get from A to B. That's right. 
And I, um, yeah, I, 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 I want to give the caveat. It's not an apology, but the examples that I'm going to be using, I wanted to take the most like visible examples that would be commonly known. And so the people that have the highest profile in our society would be people with wealth um, and people with political power. So all I want to, I'm just using them as an example of multi-generational. So for instance, I want to start with the Kennedys. I'll just mention the Kennedys. Um, I'm interested in presidents. I'm, I'm fascinated by presidents and I really like visiting presidential libraries and, um, side sidebar, my father spent a little time with George W last week. He did. Why? Yeah. He said he was at the gym and people were just walking up and chatting him up. And there was a couple secret service guys in the corner making sure nobody was uh, up to no good. But he walked up and shook his hand and said, hey, we first met at the Rangers game 40 years wow. ago. Wow. So kind of fun. What what part of Dallas, may I ask? Well, you'll like this. It was actually at the Cooper Clinic. Oh, I do like that. That's where I was married. The Cooper Clinic. I, I was there. Okay. I'm telling the people. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Joseph Kennedy. Uh, you might know him if you've seen any of the Kennedy, like a mini series over the last uh, 10 years. Joseph Kennedy fathered a president and two senators. And Robert w- became the attorney general also of the U.S., He was, Joseph Kennedy was the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., and he was the first head of the SEC. Do you know who appointed him as the first head of the SEC, by the way? I have no idea. It's FDR, who we'll get to in a moment. Joseph Kennedy's father, P.J., was a state senator in Massachusetts, and and P.J. was also a major party boss of the Democratic Party. So he was a guy who, like, behind the scenes... He was, he made things happen and he would pick that guy should run for election, et cetera. He, he, he was kind of ran things. He had started work at age 14 in the stationery store that his mother had bought after working there for years. So humble beginnings, mother buys a stationery store. He starts working with her in this business that expanded into becoming a, a market and, um, he made a bunch of money in liquor, actually. When he had a little money of his own, he I think he bought a, a liquor store, a saloon. He bought a saloon and expanded from there, and uh, he fathered Joseph. The point is, JFK, who, who we know, you know, uh, as uh, Camelot, you know, important, important and hallowed uh, American figure, he did not come from nowhere. He grew up around politicians. He grew up around world-shaping influencers. He grew up around smart business people, and he grew up around money. So he wasn't concerned. He didn't concern himself with paying the rent or how he would pay for college. That was not on uh, JFK's mind in in his high school years, his prep years, his college years. When he is developing, he's not worrying himself with, I'll use myself an example. Oh, it was a $60 night at Bennigan's tonight. That's good. I think I can pay for all of next week's food with that tip, (laughs) those tips from that night. He was not thinking that way. Now, 
there's nothing you doing some math in your head well i'm just thinking about how many people we talk to every single week that even the even the ones that have ample financial resources that mm-hmm. say things like now i want my kids to have some skin in the game so they have to think really hard about things like that uh and you're telling me that jfk who didn't develop the the moral muscles that any of us are trying to train into our kids right we can but, talk about that but he did develop the ability to carry the football a lot further down the field than his dad in the family vision which was politics and and money um you're telling me that his parents did not decide to uh well he can go to harvard but he's gonna have to pay for half of it they didn't have that type of okay because you said it on the nose what he did was he threw the family vision forward and so if your goal is to create um bootstrappers then you want to put your kids through financial trials in their formative years. You, you would want that because you want them to work hard and suffer. And yeah, if you can, you could, you can create a lifetime performer if that's your goal. Um, Joe, forgive me for calling Joseph Kennedy, Joe, we're not old friends, but that's how he was known. Joe, he had a goal for his uh, sons and that is that they would be political movers and shakers. So they were being introduced to people all through the years. He'd say, don't worry about money. Let's stop, stop talking about that. You want that car? Great. We'll get that car. Now let's talk about what, what your next election is going to be. You're going to be school president. Oh, dad, I don't know if I'm going to be school. Son, that's who our family is. You're going to be the school president. Oh, okay, okay. And so there was a kind of bootstrapping, a training school that Joe put his sons through. And the goal was to end up with political power. Now, that's not our that's not our goal. I don't think I have to state this over and over again. But the point is, there was a family vision. It had started generations back and it was developed over the years. My point is that a foundation had been laid for JFK before he was ever born, that this is the way the family's going to go. And um, as you said, the vision was political power and it it was also wealth. Uh, I think that we could say that uh, Joe was a greedy son of a gun. Um, He was, he loved money. Okay, let's move on from the Kennedys. Yeah, it wasn't getting really good at like boats or small planes that was not part and that would have been helpful if they had trained a little of that into the family vision okay i'm going to just leave that right there that's a great point you've you you nailed that point okay now this past uh this past week when i was celebrating with my wife what we did was we went into upstate new york and it was a beautiful, wonderful time. And um, within 15 minutes of where we, where we ab- abided, where we stayed, where we housed, was famous Hyde Park, which is the home of FDR and the famous Roosevelt family property. Little, little known factoid, um, FDR deeded his family property to the park system to create a presidential library. He was the first one to do that. And he did it before he died. 
So he actually lived at the presidential library before he died. Isn't that fascinating? Anyhow, let's talk about Roosevelt because um, we did, we actually went, God bless my wife, but not only did we go to the presidential library, I loved it so much. We went back a second day and she was like, we don't have to do this, do we? Yeah, I, I do. Sorry, we have to do it. Um, I didn't make her go. I told her you can, you can do whatever you want. I, I, I got to go back there. So I did. Loved it. And the Roosevelt's, uh, in 1650, they were immigrants from the Netherlands. And this, this guy was. And within 10 years of, of uh, showing up as an immigrant, um, he had bought, he had purchased a 50-acre plot of land to, to farm. That's what he knew how to do. It just so happened, this, is, this seems fortuitous, the 50 acres that he purchased are are now uh, called a Manhattan, and and on the plot of land that he bought, the Empire State Building now stands. So that there's your fifty acres that he bought back in the day, um, and his son, the son of this immigrant, was an alderman. So that's kind of a big moment in the Roosevelt family. His son was an alderman. So the first time that somebody's in in office in this new land of America. Now, fast forward five generations from this guy who came across as an immigrant and and within 10 years had bought 50 acres. By the way, let me just say, I was thinking about that first son whose name I think was Klaus, who bought this 50 50 acres of uh, farmland. When he became alderman, you know, I wonder if he went to City Hall and is meeting people and they say, now, who's your family? We're Das Roosevelt's. Oh, okay. And what, what's, what, what does your family have? What are your assets? Well, we're farmers. Is it a big farm? Is it an impressive farm? Oh, it's 50 acres. Oh, so not much of a farm. Well, maybe not, but we're we're working on it. We have some ambitions we're trying okay isn't it a good spot well you know the island i don't know what it was called now it's called manhattan you know that little island that we we're we're there oh that's a farm in the middle of an island okay Uh, whatever not just seems very humble like the beginning of something amazing so fast forward five generations and you've got teddy roosevelt who's the president of the united states in those intervening five generations, I've looked at the family tree and counted, there were 15 in, that, in those generations, there were 15 either, either sons who were in politics or daughters who married mayors or congressmen or somebody. There was this political influence legacy that got created. Interestingly, there was this whole wing of the family tree out in Oyster Bay that was all, they were all just bankers. And you could just look, his father is a banker, son banker, grandson's bankers. You could see how it moves among the cousins and everybody's running banks. And you just go, huh, there was some intellectual capital, not to mention the uh, relationships that were being passed down generationally among the Roosevelt family. And there was this political thread that ran through the whole thing. And then you end up with Teddy Roosevelt as the, uh, as the president of the United States. Uh, I'll just throw in here that it is, it's the most normal thing in the world 
for a father to want his son to learn the lessons that he had to fight and scrape for handed to him on a platter so that the son could potentially outstrip the father's achievements. It's the most natural thing in the world. LeBron James, a lot of people say LeBron James is feathering the nest so that his son could play in the NBA. Uh, Chances are slim of his son making more hay than dad did, but it proves the point that LeBron has this goal in his mind, which is I want my son to be able to do the things that I did and I want it to be a smoother path for him to success, right? LeBron didn't have a father around. He had to play at the Y and big bar and steel. Yeah. Think about Del Curry. Del Curry was a great NBA player. Yes. Um, He wasn't Steph. And Del Curry had a lot more physical advantages than Steph Curry did. That's true. But who is going to be the the more notable Hall of Famer between father and son? The dad who was equipped and probably worked his tail off, but um, had all the natural advantages, or the son who's like a forty pound lighter version of me uh, that learned how to shoot the basketball maybe better than anybody else and right. developed all those skills. Um, yeah, so father in that case was able to train something into son that led to a son who surpassed even a very high bar. That's right. And, and, um, I, I'm interested in Steph Curry and he talks about the fact that hanging around NBA locker rooms and having casual relationships with NBA stars as a child completely, uh, affected his worldview it, he understood the way team dynamics worked, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a really easy parallel here, which is FDR's father was, he, the family was already really wealthy, really influential. And FDR's father um, wasn't a politician himself, although he was involved in the Democratic Party and supporting um, politicians. He had supported Grover Cleveland, getting him into office. So check this out. As a child, FDR went with his father on several occasions to the White House and would hang out with the president. As a kid, F- that was FDR, meeting meeting Grover Cleveland. Oh, he's buddies with my father and being around that world. Um, Eleanor was famously close with her uncle, who was Teddy Roosevelt. So they had this whole, the the, the world in which these people operated. I'm just trying to paint a picture that FDR, like JFK, didn't come out of nowhere. Um, he, He was part of a family that was moving in that direction. Um, and there was a multi-generational story being told through him. FDR's father went to law school, which he did. They just walked in these in these similar roads. And FDR, this really struck me, when he came into power, was elected president, FDR had been an, an only child. He lived as an only child. His, his father had one more son with a wife that died, but he wasn't in the house when FDR was growing up. So he grew up as an only child in this huge farm estate um, Hyde Park, New York. And 
he grew up with, if, if you have any kind of affirmation as a child growing up, and he had the security of his whole world around him, he grew up, as you might expect, really confident. He grew up really optimistic. He grew up thinking, I could do anything that I set my mind to. I mean, the world is my oyster. He was athletic, and he was a leader at school, and he went to law school, and everything that you would expect. So it's funny that when when the Great Depression sets in, and we see Herbert Hoover, who was very... Um, um, recalcitrant. He was very, um, he was pugnacious, but he was kind of dour. So he wasn't, he wasn't a cheerful, we can do this. He would say, well, we've done the responsible fiscal decisions. All right, America, you know, we need to pull ourselves through this. And there's FDR standing in the wings going like, come on guys, we can do this. You, I believe in you guys. And the whole nation went, uh, we like that guy over in the corner. And they voted FDR in because he had this, we're going to make it happen attitude. And so uh, it endeared him to the nation. And I, and I think that the family that he came from set him up for that kind of confidence and optimism, et cetera. So I'll, I'll move on one, one that's last. So, that's so unique, though, amongst wealthy kids. Uh, if you go listen to stuff we've talked about, about inheritance, yes. like we've told story after story that that's not normal. Yeah. Um, so I just want to put a highlight on that because you might be listening to this and going, well, it sounds like you're saying if the kid doesn't have to worry about anything financially, then they're yes. going to turn out better. And that's not true. No. I, what the the distinction I'll make is that if you're if you set the family vision as at a purely consumer American vision, which is we want to have money and be comfortable, if you give that to your child without them having done anything, they will go their whole lives wanting that thing without doing anything. Now the Roosevelt. Uh, family vision. It's not published anywhere. I'm putting two and two together and reading between the lines. But they had a vision of being world changers. F for instance, his father donated money um, to Hyde Park so that they would uh, build a library. And that library is still in operation today in the, in the little town. So the dad wasn't just thinking. Matter of fact, it's very interesting. The house that, that uh, FDR grew up in was very small that he grew up in. And the dad was, he had he inherited unbelievable wealth. But that wasn't his goal was how do we make things the most luxurious um, and opulent as they can be. Later, FDR added 18 rooms to the house because he had a whole bunch of kids. His father did not. And he wanted to host people there for political purposes. So FDR did what we suggest people do, which is he used his physical capital to serve the family vision. So the family, my point is that the family vision wasn't money and luxury, because if it was, FDR would have grown up thinking, well, we hit that already. He grew up thinking, no, there's something that I can add to. I can build on being an influencer. I can build on being a world changer. So there wasn't, there wasn't the sense that we've already gotten there. Do you think that one of the critical ingredients of a good family vision that 
could potentially be multi-generational is that you must not choose something that you and say your spouse can nail and complete in your one lifetime. I like that wording. I think that's right. That it can't be completed by you. I think that's really good. So there is a, um, my family, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my spiritual family. My spiritual family has a uh, family vision and it is to go into all nations and make disciples of them and to um, teach them how to obey. And I'm told that uh, this is something that will carry on until the end of the age. Now, I can do my part in that. I, I can obey and I can do the thing. I can't complete it in my generation. So I want to make generations that work on that thing until it comes to completion. So I think, I think that's really fair. And if, you're, if your family vision is we, we want to get a lake house, um, that sucks because you can do that and you can over leverage things to make that happen prematurely, et cetera, et cetera. Don't do that. Have something that matters. Okay. Uh, next family. It's my, it's my third, third family example I'm giving. Okay. You've mentioned them already. They're so, they're so prominent that you've already mentioned them. George H W Bush famously retired in Texas, but his family was from Connecticut. They had, this is important for us to remember. I think we gloss over these kind of things. There was a family vacation home in, remember? Mm, Crawford? It's a, well, there's now, a, there's now a ranch in Crawford, Texas also, but, you know, uh, Bush was famous for going to Kennebunkport, Maine. So Kennebunkport, there was a, just think about this life for a second. There was a guy who, when he grew up, there was a family vacation home a couple of states away. That's the world that, George H.W. grew up in. His, his grandparents also had a plantation in South Carolina where he spent a lot of time. So before the kid is 15 years old, I, he, he had a background in travel and he understood business. So his grandfather was an executive in, hello, I didn't know this until recently, Columbus, Ohio. Was in Columbus, Ohio. Um, his presidential library is in College Station, Texas. So I, I remember when that thing was opened, our friend Shane, I think drove, he didn't drive him, but he drove some dignitaries around when that thing was being opened in College Station. And um, I'm fascinated by this family. When he was young, um, when he was young, he established his family where, Mark, that we visited the home? Uh, Spring, Texas? No. Is that where it was? We visited his home last year in the summer. I remember the house. Where was it? It was somewhere around there, right? <laughs> it was in Midland. Oh, that's right. Because that's he had right. started his oil company there. So that and that's where he his oil company was and and little little uh George, little son George grew up in that house as well. So I'm going to read a little passage from Wikipedia. Listen to this. Because of the family's wealth, Bush was largely unaffected by the Great Depression. Now that's just amazing to me. So there, there's all sorts of wonderful stories about the Great Depression affecting people's character and man, the go-getters. But 
uh, George, as a young man, the, the Great Depression comes, FDR gets elected, and um, there was so much insulating wealth that he could continue on with his education. He went into the army. That's an interesting thing these days to think that a guy went into the army as part of his formation, even though they were a totally wealthy family. It wasn't anything to do with hardship. It was, no, this is part of becoming a man and serving the country. So anyways, <clears throat> he attended a country day school and Phillips Academy, which is an elite private academy in Massachusetts. While there, now listen, just listen to his life. He served as president of the senior class, the secretary of the student council, president of the community fundraising group. This is as a high school student and a member of the editorial board of the school newspaper and captain of the varsity baseball and soccer teams. <clears throat> this was a guy who was groomed for leadership. And he, there was this story being told through his family and, and he exhibited this leadership even in high school. Then he exhibited it in World War II. There's this famous episode in, in uh, Daddy Bush's life where he saves lives in World War II. He went on to Yale. He was an oil businessman in Midland. Um, and he volunteered for Eisenhower's presidential campaign the very same year his father was elected as a senator for Connecticut. Amazing, right? So there's this family story happening. His father would have been blown away to think, not only is my son going to become a president, but his son will also be a president. Um, doesn't matter what you think about any of the politics surrounding these guys. We're talking about the family story that's being told here. And again, I just use them because they're public figures. They're they're right there. And and I was I was in my head was in the clouds when I was in FDR's uh, home and on that property, just thinking, this is crazy. This this is crazy. This stuff. So fast forward to today, and I'll just say that there are stories being told all around us uh, in your life, you, you might be amazed if you talk to the, some of the most godly leaders that you know, if you would just ask them, tell me about your family, or this can happen spiritually if it's not in your natural family, tell me about the men who fathered you in the Lord. And that's, a weird, that's something that can happen uh, spiritually for us that's outside of the natural, which is you might fall in a spiritual family line that takes you directly to Hudson Taylor, takes you directly to Billy Graham. I don't know. But those things, we can kind of jump the tracks spiritually by being fathered by people who make disciples that aren't in our natural family line, but we're pursuing the, the family vision of, of, of dad that way. So I just I say that as an illustration that most likely the people that you consider to be leaders um, the people that you consider to be um, um, spiritually mature, they've been fathered somewhere. There's a family vision that's been passed along to them. I just give this as an example. I talked about this in the Midrash episode that Jeremy Pryor's father, Jerry, often joins us for those discussions. Did you hear that episode? You know what? I just listened to that episode this week. Yeah. Um, long story, but I'm, I'm ready to spin up a something like that here in Salt Lake. And I, I'm the guy who you were describing like, man, I get, I have a lack of deep 
diving into scripture in my life with right. other guys on right. a regular basis. So um, I, I actually was on a call with somebody who attends that that Midrash oh, wow. uh, regularly just before we started recording. And I was drilling them for for comments and and what, what works, what doesn't. So were they also know. enthusiastic about it? Super enthusiastic. And and that's probably something that people don't realize is that when you do an episode that I'm not in or vice versa, it might take us a month to listen. <laughs> that's but true. That's true. There's been a couple that you've made that have had tremendous impact on me. So oh, that neat. was one of them where I was just like, wow, I am going to listen to this four more times so that I'm ready to kind of tee it up for people. But neat. that was a good one. Neat. Well, I, I hope that it uh, provided you with ample equipment to, to at least dream about doing it on your own. And as I said in that episode, Jeremy's father, Jerry, shows up at those midrashes, and it's great to get his input. And also, I like to pick Jerry's brain, and it's so obvious to see where Jeremy came from. And it's also obvious to see now bigger isn't always better but it's also it's obvious to see that the foundations that were poured in jeremy allow him to have a larger impact than his father has had i I don't mean that to be um, a criticism at all i mean to compliment jerry because it's clear that jerry has a vision for jackson his grandson that outstrips both of them and jeremy has even said that he's very interested in that for his uh, for his children, but um, I use that in ex- as a, as an example. I even thought of our friend um, Justin Wolfenberg. Justin came late to the game of construction. He was probably in his late thirties when he decided. I think construction and working on homes is what I want to be about. Well, when he started doing that. Uh, because of his view on fathering and discipleship from the outset, I remember him bringing his eight year old son along. I'm, I'm guessing at how old he was at the time. Um, but I definitely remember Henry being a 12 year old and understanding how construction works and being a partner with his dad. Henry is now 16 and now is a, is the leader of the construction um, apprenticeship that that uh, Justin leads. So Justin's in charge of the whole program and he'll be in charge of, well, what are we teaching today, et cetera. But as for the work itself, Henry leads the, the actual work teams. And so it's so obvious that the, um, the, the aptitudes that are in Justin are being magnified in Henry. And all of the things that Justin had to scrape and claw for, I think he came to the Lord even after college. Man, he went through some junk in his formative years. And Henry will not be working through junk like sin issues like that. He won't be having to work through father issues, et cetera, like that. And he's he's just having a, a carpet laid out for him to be able to. I'm using the construction as an illustration, but it's true. I know this for Henry. It's true for him spiritually, relationally, intellectually, physically, and financially. I know that all of those things are being established for him in these multi-general ways. So I give all of that as an encouragement to all of us. To th- 
I want you to think of yourself, uh, depending on where you are. Maybe, you're, maybe you're you have a glorious run happening for you right now. But if you're starting small, if you are from a humble place, I want you to think of yourself as this immigrant who comes and buys 50 acres before you're dead. And you go, maybe five generations from now, I'll have a president in the family. And I put quotes around that, meaning I don't mean a president of the United States, although go for it. I'd rather one of our one of our family lines as a future president of the United States than someone else. However, what I'm really talking about is significance in the kingdom of God, creating an outpost of your family for the kingdom of God and letting those generations magnify what you do because of the immense capital that's building up in all five capitals that are being handed uh, down to multiple generations. Trying to figure out where where my line stops, I guess. Not to say that we're going to cap it, but... Yeah. How far am I trying to carry the ball and how much am I trying to tee up the next generation and even how how directly am I trying to point them? Am I That's saying, a great question. You know, here is the trajectory we're on but you know, I know you're not going to go in a straight line from where I'm going. Yes. You're going to take some turns and praise God, uh I'm sure that grandfather Roosevelt didn't no, didn't say he, he maybe he bought a farm. Maybe he'd say, you know, my dream is that my kid's going to have the biggest farm in New York. Yes. Well, that wouldn't have that that wouldn't have been the the eventual path. Uh, and so, yeah, lots of good stuff to think about. I I still think I'm thinking about our critics listening because uh, they do listen. And if you've ever looked at the YouTube channel, they just leave tons of negative comments. Um do you think if I say that people will go to the YouTube channel? <laughs> I was thinking, what is he talking about? That's if funny. you don't see any negative comments while you're there, just go ahead and subscribe. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that there's critics of any multi-generational thinking are, well, you can't decide what your great grandchildren are going to be called to and all about. That's sort of built into our evangelical framework is that everybody gets their own private oh, personal yes. relationship with God and oh, it yes. mostly happens in their closet during quiet times. Um, but I heard that zinger. How do we, how do we, how do we have this throwing our kids and our generations into the future on a mission as a family and also leaving ample room for them to hear from the Lord and steer the ship? That is a great question. And I'll only say that um, I think that if Klaus de Roosevelt had said, I want to have a uh, two U.S. presidents on my downline, I don't think that would have been helpful, um, n- nor could he envision it. Uh, I-, I think that our family vision has to be something um, general enough so that there is room for uh, maneuvering for the generations that come behind us. Even understanding this, here's a little secret for you. Probably your grandchildren, if they even maintain the family crest, and I think of the I think of our family vision as part of the family crest, they they might edit it some, and they oh a lot. So, Definitely your kids. Sure. Well. So I think that 
what we have to do is with our with our spouses, we have to come up with something that coordinates the giftings of the two of us that describes the calling of our immediate family, our, our uh, nuclear family. I think ideally, you don't always get the benefit of this, but ideally where we've come from spiritually, our parents behind us, and sends our children in a direction. So for instance, my children will be sent in a, in a discipling direction. They will be sent in a discipleship direction. If that takes them to the mission field, great. If that takes them into a home to be mothers of huge families that do who knows what, that's okay with me too. But I know that what's going to be imparted into them is a discipleship vision that is going to be, I believe, magnified through the generations that come behind me. I do think that being so specific that it only describes me and my wife is can really hamstring the generations that come past you. And I don't think that um, we're, we want to be controlling with our children as they develop into adulthood. We just want them to know where they came from. And this is, this is the story of our family. And where does that send you? I, I expect them to, I expect them to modulate as you move forward. And so I think that's a, I don't think there's an easy answer to how do you create a vision statement that is specific enough to describe your marriage and general enough so that your children can operate on it as well. But as I said, we're going to get, we're going to get a family in here um, soon that are going to describe that multi-generation story. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't expect us to necessarily end here. We talked a lot about family vision and family vision statement. If you guys haven't heard about it, you should go to our little uh, course that we've designed that can help you write a family vision statement in three hours or less. Uh, and it's really not about let's produce a nice sign that we can pay somebody on Etsy to craft for us no. that will hang in our living room and impress people to say, look, we're a very interesting <laughs> and edgy Christian family nah. when you come to our table. We're it's, hip. it's really something that mostly I, I have to give credit to Stephen created to walk you through what are the experiences, what are the the moments where you went as a family, wow, this is this is incredible. We're really lit up right now. And how do we take memories of those types of things and extract from them the unique giftings and callings that are present in you and your spouse and then uh, eventually that you see being perpetuated through your downlines generationally. So if that's something you want to check out, outpostacademy.net is where mm-hmm. you would find that course and Stephen ha- you have a you have a discount to make it affordable for the people because I'm not all I'm of them to do that not I'm all of them are that. rockefellers yet and that's right so, so this is airing i think sometime in late may so here's what i'll say if you uh, if you will do this before um, june 15th if you'll go there before June 15th and go to um, outpostacademy.net, I'm going to throw 50% discount if you'll just put in the code Abraham's Wallet until June 15th. We'll give you 50% off. What do you say? 
I say that's that's incredible that you could be producing presidents right now. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. I like the sound of that. Spiritual presidents. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, if anybody's final vision statements got the term spiritual presidents in it, oh. we will refund your your fee. I'm I'm all for it. it. Sounds great. You have to produce one, but <laughs> once you've produced one, then you get your money back. Just show me that's in the statement. You, you win. All, all right. right. Thanks, Mark. This is good. Until next week. All right. <laughs>